Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw and welcome back to Vibe. Today I want to introduce to you a guest who is coming to us from across the pond. It is one of my favorite things that working in the online space, I can talk to amazing experts about things that you want to learn about from anywhere in the world. And today I have Dr. Keith Scott Mumby. He does not want me to call him Dr. Mumby. He wants me to call him Dr. Keith. So he's a, he's a MD from Manchester, United Kingdom. And he's been around for a really long time. He's been researching uh, for decades. He has he has been publishing books for decades. He's one of the big names out there. Uh, if you talk to any anybody else who's a wellness, health, nutrition author, we all know his name. He was, in 1990, was being called Britain's number one allergy detective. And he has a lot to say about the meteoric rise in food sensitivities or allergies. Maybe we will get into what exactly the difference is. So 35 years of medical knowledge and clinical experience. He's published 18 books. Welcome to the show, Dr. Keith. Hello, Robin. Great to be here. Great to talk with you. And I should also like return the flattery by saying I think you're doing a fantastic job of educating folks as well. Well, we try. And that's our mission around here. It's what keeps us going. It's our fire in the belly. I know that's a something you talk a lot about is fire in the belly. And I think that gut health is on so many people's minds. I don't feel like 30 years ago, we had anywhere near the level of conversation about it or the level of gut disease. So will you talk a little bit about what you mean by fire in the belly? Well, uh, inflammatory process, it was summed up quite simply. And this goes back a long time, Robin's got a long history, you know, Hippocrates, whoever he was, you know, we're not really sure who Hippocrates was, but he said all disease starts in the gut, and he was not wrong. And uh, Philippe Pinel, a, a French psychiatrist 150 years ago or so, he spotted that foods and the things that you ate were quite capable of disturbing other parts of the body, particularly mind and brain. So the idea is, in principle, has been around a long time. But I think it, was, it took till about the mid-20th century to realize there was a big phenomenon going on here. And pioneers in the movement, me and a few others, you know, there were less than, a, in the 70s and 80s, less than a dozen of us doing this as a full-time career. But we began to see quite astonishing changes just by modifying a person's diet to the point, Robin, where I began to evolve a whole different view of nutrition. You know, traditionally you're taught, well, it's what you're not getting and you need to supplement. You know, that's the big deal in nutrition. I actually began to realize you can get far more case gain and recovery from what you don't eat. So taking things out of your diet actually has a far more powerful effect than adding in things that are missing. Of course, you need, you need both, as you know. But if you have a milk allergy and migraines forever and you stop drinking milk, the migraine goes away. That's a result, whereas you, you can take endless supplements and not necessarily hit on anything that would help a migraine. So, you know, that's where we'd got to by the 70s and 80s. And then pretty soon we began to look at things like dysbiosis, a very famous paper uh, by Orion Truss, uh, published in the, the Journal of Orthomolecular Psychiatry. 
uh, he, he called it the missing diagnosis. You know, he realized that people had fantastic dysbiosis, candida in particular, and that was affecting them and messing them up. And so the, the story, and then we got, got onto leaky gut. You probably know, you know, the stages of evolution. It all began to open up for us in the last 30 or 40 years. And it's been a very exciting discovery because actually it comes down to the fact you can heal almost anything by just changing what you're doing with your gut. It's marvelous. <laughs> Do you think that just by removing the foods that you're sensitive to, do you think your body can do the repair work and uh, heal from it just by removing it? Because, you know, there's, there's all these like diets like the AIP popping up where, you know, if the practitioner putting somebody on the autoimmune protocol where they're stripping out a bunch of the higher allergen foods, um, they don't, they don't always explain to the patient that, this diet is not necessarily your sustainable longevity improving diet for the long term. We are just removing these triggers and these things that are causing gut inflammation for a season while we heal. Is removing it the actual key to healing it? Or when when people get off and also when people get off the food, or they do you have to do additional work? And also when people get off the food, um do they usually have to stay off of it for life? Like that's a permanent allergy for them or can they, can they come back to it after their gut heals? Oh my goodness. That's a big question with lots of answers, Robin. I'll do my best to be quick. Uh, you're absolutely right. Of course, it's, it's paramount to tell the patient that this is a test diet, you know, an elimination program is a trial. It's a test. And even if you feel terrific and your arthritis goes away, wonderful. But we never say to the patient, right, stay on that diet. It's too restricting. We need to follow through and find out which foods were the trouble. You know, if you give up 20 foods and your asthma goes away or your eczema, that's great. But you want to know surely which food it won't be all 20. So you, you reintroduce them one at a time. This is what we call challenge testing. There are other ways, of course, to get for the information, you know, blood tests and things, but there's nothing quite like asking your own body, do you like this food or not? And if your body goes, yuck, and gives you a shocking pain or you feel so tired you have to lie down, that's your body saying, I don't like this food. So what happens is the, the long-term exclusions are, are often quite limited, you know, one or two or three things that you'd be best to avoid long-term. But the kind of food allergy or food intolerance phenomenon I'm talking about isn't the kind of severe kind, you know, where the person has to rush to ER and if they have just another crumb of peanuts, they'll be in big trouble. These are, it's, the way to think of it is more like settling it down to embers, you know, glowing embers. If you throw fuel on it, which means eating a lot more of the food, it'll blaze up again. But if you just have the food once in a while, you don't need to avoid it completely and strictly. In fact, it's a Scott Mumby saying, you know, what you do wrong now and again isn't really the problem. It's what you do wrong on a daily basis that causes the trouble. And yes, you do tend to recover tolerance of the food, you know, most of these kind of reactions anyway. If you avoid milk or whatever it might be that you, you want to avoid for a year or more, it's worth testing it again. Try and introduce it to your diet and you'll probably find it settled down that it's okay. But of course, if you go back to a quart of milk a day, <laughs> the whole phenomenon will come back and you'll begin to react again. So the important thing is not to push any one food to, and of course that's what we do, you know, in our diets, 
wheat, for example, people meet too much of wheat because it's in bread, cakes, biscuits, pasty, pastas, cookies. It's just about everywhere. So you have to be cautious of that kind of repetitious eating. That's one of the important principles. In fact, the opposite of that is what we call a rotatory diversified diet. And that's what nature had for us, Robin. You know, uh, before we became farmers, we used to wander around in the forest and in the fields, and we'd just kind of eat what was going, and it would come and go seasonally. So we always rotated our foods, and that wasn't a problem. But now, if you go to the supermarket today, you can have, you can have tomatoes every single day of the year even though traditionally it's been a seasonal food for us. So it's, it's a big answer, it's a long answer, but you know, you, if you understand the rules, it's like a game, you can win, but if you don't know the rules, you get yourself into a mess. But once you understand the rules, you can play with foods and you can bring them in and put them away and rotate them or mix and match them in ways that suit you. Oh yes, that's the, that's the one important principle I haven't mentioned that I should have said. There are no standard set diet patterns for anybody, Robin. Everyone's, everyone's tolerances are different. We're unique genetic creatures. And you know what you can tolerate and what's good for your body might not suit somebody else. So it's very important that people work out what their body likes. And if your body loves to avoid meat, that's great. You know, that's, that's what you should do. Other people they have to avoid certain vegetable family, for example, called the nightshades, you know, potatoes, and peppers, and uh, eggplant, and things like that. It just depends on that person. Everyone is different, is my unique message. And you've got to figure it out for yourself. What does your body like? Yeah, I have heard you say that quote that you say gets often attributed to you. It's, it reminds me of what my grandmother said. It makes me wonder if my grandmother got it from you because you would have been contemporaries when she was going through metastatic cancer and she chose not to do chemotherapy and radiation. Instead, she did the Gerson protocol and totally cleaned up her lifestyle and didn't eat any sugar or animal products or, um, and really got rid of all the toxicity and healed of cancer and lived another 20 something years, even though she was told she'd be dead within a year. She used to say to me, and it stuck in my head, even though, you know, I was in high school when she was going through her cancer treatment. And now I'm a mother of four adult children. So there's a lot of decades in there, but she said, it's not what you do once in a while that will kill you. It's what you do every day. Have you, has your work been influenced by the, is it, what is it called? The Human Microbiome Project? I mean, this is pretty new stuff, and it probably corroborates a lot of what you were saying decades before. Well, it certainly does, and, but it's a whole new perspective, really. This has been an interesting evolution, Robin. Like I said, you know, 40 years ago, we were using the word food allergy. We just meant, you know, if you eat beef, you feel sick, or if you eat dairy, you feel sick. Uh, it seemed as good a term as any... Uh, orthodox colleagues who play around with immunity and that kind of allergy phenomena got very uptight about this. And so we started calling it food intolerance. It really doesn't matter what you call it, if it's just something you can show the person should or shouldn't. But what we've come to realize now is that a lot of this is based on microgenetics. You know, the human micro microbiome was uh, discovered or unraveled, as it were, a couple of decades ago. But the interesting thing is that no human being alive actually has that microbiome. 
we've all got little tweaks and variations that are called single nucleotide polymorphisms. I'm sorry for that horrible word, but we shorten it to SNPs, <laughs> as uh, SNPs or SNPs. Uh, what it means is there's some tiny little genetic variation, you know, a flick in one of the, uh, the small groupings of molecules in your DNA. It doesn't mean you'll grow two heads, but it might mean you can't tolerate eggs or you can't tolerate bananas, whereas of course everybody else can. So that seems to me the more fundamental explanation that explains most of what's going on. And that really leads back to what I just said with your previous question, that everyone is different. We're all unique. Nobody has the actual microbiome. So you've got to figure out what your particular body is tuned into and what it's tuned out of. And that's a, a most important journey. I think every human being should do that once in a while. It's well worth the trouble. So you've mentioned that, that you feel that our genetics, uh, these SNPs that that make us unique from other people are what leads to reactivity to specific foods, maybe foods even that most of us think of as healthy foods, we've been taught are healthy foods. But do you feel like our exposure to antibiotics, I have a hard time finding anybody who hasn't been on an antibiotic in the last 20 years and our weird glutens and hybridized grains and Roundup they spray on our food and GMOs and all this chemical exposure, do you think that this is part of, too, why we are reactive to foods at really high rates these days? Oh, I think unquestionably it's, it's an overload or a burden phenomenon, you know, that plus that plus that. It's all just getting too much, even before the GMO story came along. You know, we were having foods that's loaded with pesticides and pollutants and then uh, manufactured food that's vitiated, meaning it's weakened and loses all its nutritional work. Uh, and the kind of weird concoction that came to be normal eating in the 60s and 70s. I mean, it, not many people were questioning it at that time. But all of this is inflammatory to the bowel. It will set your, your bowel on fire. So with or without antibiotics, you're going to run into this trouble pretty quickly. If you add in the antibiotic story, and as you know, the, taking antibiotics for your tonsils and a tooth abscess is not really the problem. The problem is that farmers, the agricultural businesses, loading animals with antibiotics. These are getting into the food chain. And even if you're eating plants, you know, you can, chickens can be fed, well, they're fed on a, uh, something called uh, roxasone, which has arsenic in it. That appears in the chicken feces. And also, if the chickens have been fed on antibiotics, that gets into their feces, which are often used then as fertilizers for products that are claimed to be organic, but certainly would be considered vegetarian and vegan foods, are nevertheless contaminated. So this whole contamination story is what I and a bunch of colleagues began to unravel in the 70s, and it just got worse and worse. And of course, instead of being corrected, it's gone on to be you know, 100 times as bad as it was. But realizing what is happening does help some people. You know, you have to try and source from uncontaminated sources. Very difficult. I've got to say I'm very gloomy, Robin, about trying to eat organic. You know, you can have stuff that's certified organic. But what does that mean? You know, Chinese power stations are releasing emissions that you can see now drifting across the Pacific. You can actually see it on satellite photographs. It's called brown aerosol. And it's landing on the, uh, the not just the American West. You're finding it as far inland as Payson, Arizona. There are birds and trees covered in junk, muck, 
from Chinese power stations, it's almost like a fingerprint thing. You know, they can tell which power stations. So when it, every time it rains, all this stuff drops from the sky onto your beautifully certified organic food. Where do we go with this? You know, uh, Eskimos, I, well, I knew it, I should say, and native populations in the far north. Their mothers now are feeding, breastfeeding children, which is all good. We all approve, as you know. But the breast milk's just loaded with pesticides. It's coming to them from... It's a planet-wide phenomenon. The only way you could be truly organic, I think, is just grow all your crops in a greenhouse using hydroponics. Uh, and that's kind of tough going. So, like I say, I'm rather... I mean, I'm not saying to your people, don't. they shouldn't try it. You should. Anything that helps... A step in the right direction. If you can reduce the burden by 40%, that's great. If you can reduce it by 80%, that's better. But where do you run to? You know, there's, there's nowhere to hide from what I call a blizzard of chemicals that they're being subjected to. It's everywhere on planet Earth. The remotest lakes, the farthest north is in Antarctica. You can't escape. Now we have, uh, we have newborns being born with over 200 carcinogenic chemicals in their umbilical cords. And that's why, but I do want people to realize that buying organic is still the right thing to do. We are still sending a message to the marketplace that we want foods that didn't get sprayed and we can't, we can't necessarily solve the chemtrails problem and the overspraying issues, but you can massively reduce the amount of pesticide an herbicide in your blood in a matter of days just by changing to an organic diet. So I still want people to feel hopeful and like there's a lot they can do. Well, yeah, maybe I, maybe I was too gloomy. I'm not saying you shouldn't do anything. You know, you should. Anything you can do to reduce this burden will statistically mean you've got a chance of living longer with less disease and so on. I, I thoroughly approve. Yeah, I, I think that you could probably connect the dots for us between inflammation and autoimmune disease so many of our readers talk to us about their autoimmune diagnoses and gut health. Can you kind of put those together for us? Well, yeah, let's, let's start with the autoimmune because that was the, the very next big thing that sort of surfaced after we were looking at food allergies and things. Like I said, we did call it allergy, meaning some kind of in, immune response. What happened uh, with, partly with bad diets and chemical pollutions, our, our immune systems got messed up, muddled, and then along came, you know, mass vaccination, which is definitely dumping on the immune system. And the immune system just doesn't know how to handle this. So it begins to go a bit skew with. The immune system then starts attacking inappropriate things. Well, you know, it's not particularly appropriate to have an, an allergic or immune reaction to bananas. You know, it's not a pathogen, is it? Or, or a lettuce and all these other kind of foods. So that's not appropriate. But it got even more out of hand when we began to immunologically attack our own tissues. And this is what the, the word autoimmune means. It means your body has decided it's allergic to your joints. So you get inflammatory arthritis or uh, you know, eczema, asthma. Uh, and one of the most important, tar tar I was going to say, I better introduce this term, target organs. The disease doesn't matter so much what, the, what is attacking it. The disease is mostly characterized by what organ is affected. So if you're allergic to milk and it attacks your lungs, you're going to get asthma. If it attacks your skin, you're likely to end up with eczema and colitis if it's bowel and so on. And I mentioned a, a migraine. I have a very outstanding memory of a migraine lady. Had it horribly every week for 63 years. I found it was milk and it was only milk. So after she stopped doing that, she had no more migraines. 
you'd think that she was real happy about that. But actually, she wasn't. She was in a fury. She was really angry that nobody had told her this for over 60 years, uh, that it could be a simple food that was inflaming part of her body. So, yeah, so autoimmunity and this food intolerance, reactivity, go hand in hand. It's worsened, it's, it's ranked up actually by the vaccination programs which are disturbing and confusing the immune system in the most bizarre way. I mean, there's no question what's happening. You know, there's a direct parallel between the number of vaccines a child is subjected to and uh, atop, what we call atopic disease, that's allergic disease, you know, eczemas, asthma, uh, you know, those kind of inflammatory things. There's a, it, it's directly in proportion, there's no argument. It's just being swept under the carpet, of course. We know about all that, that's politics. If we could start on that, we'd be here afternoon. Um, but the, the reaction is clearly documented that if you interfere too much with the immune system, it goes haywire, it will attack you, or it will attack foods that are not really, they're not harming us, you know, they're not pathogens. The, the immune system is supposed to attack pathogens. Well, it just so happens that, that the, the main area, the main battlefield, as it were, is in your guts. Uh, our skin does a good job of protecting us against outside forces. Even if pollen falls on your skin, you know, you're not necessarily going to get hay fever. But if it goes into your body, you will. Well, with foods, what we're doing is taking large amounts. Think about it. You know, we're taking one or two pounds worth of food into our bodies every day. Um, just a tiny little smidge of pollen on the breeze can give you all those horrible hay fever symptoms. So imagine what a couple of pounds of potential allergens can do. So that's where most of the rumpus seems to take place, is in the gut, and that leads to my term fire in the, in the belly, Robin. Inflammation is like a fire. It's, it, for, for a start, it's characterized by hot conditions. In fact, there are four main things that take place in inflammation, where inflammation is present. There's pain, there's swelling, there's redness, and there's heat. And if you actually you know, hold somebody's arthritic joint, you can feel it's hotter than the rest of their body. So it is very much like a fire, and it will consume tissues. It will consume good tissues. So it's one of the core things about aging is that you will burn up your good tissues in a kind of imitation fire, as it were. And, and it's very serious, and you need to quench inflammation in your body. No matter how, you've got to quieten it down because you'll die very quickly if you can't. Uh, there are ways to do that. As I say, avoiding uh, allergens and things like that is probably more valuable. Than, but you should still take your omega-3s and curcumin and all these things. Uh, plant antioxidants, especially the bright-colored plants. We know all these have powerful antioxidants properties which will quench inflammation and it's vital that uh, people learn to do that for themselves very important in looking after the body okay so omega-3 mm. omega-3 fatty acids uh that would be your fish oil i feel like there's a lot of problems with sourcing of fish oil for the vegans listening uh we we well, like listen, there's nothing wrong with the, the flax oil pathways just the one or two people mostly north europeans that don't have the right genetic makeup to really fully process plant oils, uh, you know, borage and uh, evening primrose and, and flaxseed. I think that's what I take. You know, I don't use krill oil. Uh, I, I just prefer the plant the plant oil process, and it works for me. Again, everybody's body's different, but I'm perfectly happy with cold pressed flaxseed oil. 
Yeah, krill oil is, I think, an improvement on the fish oil that we've so overfished some waterways in, in the world, and that's causing a lot of ecological problems. But at, here at Green Smoothie Grow, we make a sprouted flaxseed and also a sprouted broccoli chia flaxseed, and you can get in the habit of just putting a couple tablespoons in your green smoothie. We try to get you to always be making a quart of green smoothie a day, and putting that in it is is an inflammation tamer for me. I don't... I get every year I get my CRP, C-reactive protein is uh, in a blood panel that you can get inexpensively. And I'm always below one. I've not been <laughs> great. Well done. <laughs> yep. And I think it has everything to do with the, the various things that we talk about here on the podcast, just so everybody knows. And I want Dr. Mumby to pipe up with anything I've missed here. But my ways are you mentioned, you mentioned curcumin, which is an extract of turmeric. I put the actual turmeric root in my green smoothie. I put ginger in there. I do lots of green smoothies. I do green and vegetable juicing. Um, let me think if there's something I've missed. I like the sprouted flaxseed or bro- broccoli chia flaxseed. I don't do the fish oils just I don't like the some of the implications there and some of the sourcing issues with the the yeah. heavy metals from from various waterways of the world. But um, what else have I missed? What other good re- inflammation tamers? I think that's a pretty good way of describing it. And you're, you're spot on, Robin. The only thing I'd add is to say, do do take the trouble to work. You know, some serious approach or plan to figure out good or bad foods for you. Because if you avoid foods that essentially are infl- inflaming your body, whether you call it an allergy, an intolerance, or a SNP, or a genetic disorder, whatever, it's <laughs> just your body doesn't like it, you need to figure it out. But there's a right and wrong way to do it. You know, just giving up something may not work. You may not see any result. This is uh, from what a friend of mine, Dr. Doris Rapp, calls the eight nails in the shoe trap. If you've got eight nails sticking up in the sole of your shoe, you're going to limp. It hurts, right? And as she points out, if you pull one of the nails out, you're still going to limp, even though it was a painful nail. You need to get all eight nails out, and that's where the elimination diet approach comes from. Uh, anyway, there are, there are lots of texts telling you how to do this, and it's well worth even a person with you know already uh, voluntarily restricting their intake. Uh, it's still worth the time and trouble. It's only a week or ten days at the moment. You know, going back to what we said at the beginning of the talk. Uh, a test diet is not a maintenance diet. So however tough a test, listen, the toughest test diet is a fast, isn't it? Just yeah. don't eat at all for a few days. If all of your, uh, your ills and your woes clear up, then it clearly is a food. But it doesn't mean all foods. You just reintroduce them one at a time and see if you can figure out which are the ones that actually cause the trouble. Most of the inflammation in my experience, Robin, comes from that. The only other phenomenon that plays a strong part is, you know, I know you know about leaky gut syndrome, uh, where things get into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there. They're probably quite well tolerated in the gut. We do have some very strong barriers in the gut. There's a, 80% of our immune system is down there. Uh, and we can generally tolerate stuff in our gut. But if it leaks out into the blood, that's when uh, mayhem breaks out. You know, And we call that leaky gut. Well, you know, 30 years ago, Robin, our model was that aging, you know, like wear and tear and the the inflammation and gradually breaking down the lining of the gut so that it leaked. Well, we now know that's completely not true. (laughs) The gut does leak, but it's actually controlled electrically by the nervous system that's in the gut, the the so-called enteric nervous system or the second brain in the gut. We might get a minute to talk about that. But that actually works like a nervous system, and it, and it snaps 
the the uh, the gaps in the gut through which these things leak. It snacks them shut, like, like with a clack, you know, just like it's a door. It's a split second thing. Whack, the door closes. So it's not, you know, a wear and tear phenomenon at all. It's been a very, very interesting discovery that. Is that the biggest myth out there in what you hear people talking about with all the talk with a lot of practitioners and researchers about uh, gut health is what leaky gut really is? Or are there uh, others? Certainly, you know, in, even in well-educated and well-established holistic practitioners and healers and people that know the story, this has been very strangely sort of sticks, you know, that people cling to this, they love it. But in fact, it's, it's just a mistake. You know, it's, it's a nervous control mechanism using, using the gut nervous system, which, as you know, is very, it's very, it's very big now. It's very powerful. We're even calling it the second brain. But, but no, to answer your question in, in one sense, that the actual number one myth about food and health is that it doesn't matter that much. You know, you can't, I can't believe the number of doctors and practitioners who just won't consider that what the person's eating is terribly, terribly important to health. It's, it's infuriating to me. It exasperates me that doctors can actually teach a cancer patient, no, it doesn't matter what you eat, forget it. You just take the chemo and that's all that matters. Uh, it's, this degree of ignorance is, is terrible. Anyway, of course, we're, I'm speaking with a group who are in the know. But yes, you know, your listeners and followers probably would be delighted to know there is actually a well-established mechanism for this. There's actually an, an, a new, yet another hormone, zonulin, that we know is involved in this process. And it's, it's no longer a sort of myth uh, not miss the wrong word, a, a legend started in uh, hol by holistic practitioners. It's actually now mainstream science, Robert, which I think is very encouraging, actually. They're still stuck with celiac disease. You know, they won't look a bit wider and see, well, could tomatoes do that? Could kale do that, perhaps, and things? They will only look at gluten foods. But at least they're, get they're getting there, <laughs> which is good. Yeah, mainstream medicine seems to be 10 or 20 years behind what functional medicine or biological medicine over there in Europe, whatever you want to call it, has been on top of for a long time. And so at least they're recognizing multiple chemical sensitivities now, at least they're recognizing celiac now, but there's lots more that they are ignorant of. And it's, you know, because they're not being trained in the medical schools. Medical schools are way behind because they're so busy chasing every single new little supposedly forward progress in pharmacopoeia so and surgery and that keeps them very busy they, they... <laughs> keeps them real busy so they don't actually learn anything <laughs> oh i don't know why i'm laughing robin as you know it's an appalling problem <laughs> it's, it's terrible we're taken over by a murderously incompetent medical system and it's not only bad and it doesn't do the job, but there's increasing resistance to people being allowed to choose for themselves and do what they want personally. That's, that's the sinister part. I mean, if somebody wants to go and pop pills, that's a freedom they should be allowed. But by the same token, we should be allowed the freedom to not vaccinate our children if we don't accept the story. Yeah, and I think that you and I are coming at it from the angle that it needs to be addressed, which is educate the consumer, the patient, in what's missing when they go to the doctor's office, because as they become more dissatisfied with their their standard of care treatment in the doctor's office, where it's all drugs all the time, 
then they demand other answers and they become disillusioned and they go somewhere else and they find practitioners who will dig into root cause. And I think that's a more effective strategy because then it's market driven rather than, you know, beat the doctors over the head and say, why are you so focused on drugs and surgery? There's more, there's so much more that, you you know, as as the consumer demands it, they're going, they, they are slowly responding to it. Yeah, I, I made a, a conscious choice, you know, back in the late seventies, Roman, where I, I, because you know I was experimenting and getting these amazing results with changing people's diets and so on, and I made a conscious decision. I could, I just couldn't be bothered trying to get this across to doctors. They were so resistant. In fact, food allergies were called mumby jumbo in my town back in the eighties. They're all laughing up their sleeves, but you know, by the end of the nineties, not only had it become established, but Britain's National Health Service is buying anti-allergy or food allergy medications from me. So I went from being a quack and being laughed at to being a respectable source of therapy and treatments in medicine in less than 20 years. Now in medicine, that's pretty lightning change. You probably know (laughs) it takes a long time to change the entrenched view in medicine. It, it does. And you were an early adopter and you were out there getting mocked and thank you for doing that and standing your ground because now you, it really is making inroads. So talk a little about the second brain. What, what's the finding that we became aware of where now so many practitioners are finally aware that there's a second brain in our guts? Uh, well, partly, partly it rests on the tissue. You know, I mean, I did my anatomy way back when. I better not tell you. You wouldn't believe how old I am. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's uh, early 60s, shall we say. Uh, you know, and you could see these nerve plexuses uh, in, the, in the gut system. But the realization that it was actually a separate uh, functioning neurological system has been very slow coming. And in fact, it's only in about the last 15, 20 years most. And there are some surprising aspects to this. For example, I think everybody pretty well has heard of serotonin, you know, the supposed happy hormone and so on. Not that simple by any means. But most people will be stunned to realize that 95% of the body's serotonin is in the gut. It's not in the brain. And there's an interesting spin-off from that, which is, you know, SSRIs, which are given out for depression and supposedly the person is short of serotonin. The whole story leaks like a colander sieve. It's, it's nonsense, in fact. But that's the kind of story they put together. But if I add one fact that most doctors don't know, uh, which is that the SSRI, you know, like Prozac and those kind of drugs, SSRIs, are actually anti-inflammatories. And in my view, that's probably why they work. They quell inflammation in the gut where most of the serotonin is stored and needed anyway. And it has almost nothing to do with the brain like psychiatrists think it does. I'm used to sticking my neck out. Most times, Robin, I've been found to be correct in the end, even if it takes 10 or 20 years. But, you know, watch this one because that could be ultimately turn out to be the ultimate pathway why in other words we don't need ssris we just need jolly good anti-inflammatories to calm down an awful lot of suffering but it does work like a brain there are more there are at least as many neurons anyway 100 trillion i think it is as there are in the spinal cord you know a neuron is a, a nerve cell that has a long lead running off that connects with other nerve cells well, there's more of those in the gut than there is in the spine and connected to the brain. So that tells you something. You know, it tells you it's a serious full-on immune system. So there are really three parts now. We, we used to talk about the autonomic nervous system being the sympathetic and parasympathetic. 
but now we have to add the enteric system as well. And science has suddenly got very interested in this. You know, there are hundreds of papers coming out every year looking at this aspect of health. And it's shocking what's been missed by orthodoxy. Uh, but, you know, for doctors like me and pioneers, it's been wonderful to see that it's backing up what we found in some way intuitively. You know, in some cases, we got the right answer for the wrong explanation. But it didn't matter. The patient got well. That was all that mattered. You know, 30 years later, we come up with a better explanation. Well, that's fine. I'm okay with that. Fascinating. So, yeah. second brain in our guts. How about how about the overuse of antibiotics? I mean, 20 years ago, you were probably out there saying, "Hey, everyone, you keep using antibiotics like this, they're going to become, you know, we're going to get these superbugs." Well, now we have them. Now we have people getting MRSA and really alarmingly high rates in in hospitals. But what 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 should we do about it? What should the consumer know about this and do about it? Well, um, that's a whole interview in itself, in a way, Robin. I mean, first of all, don't take them unless it's desperate. Now, obviously, if, if the person has a pathogen which is proven to be sensitive to cephalosporin or broad-spectrum penicillin, and it's pneumonia and the patient's threatened with death, give them the antibiotics. Of course you would. What, what is troubling is the waste and the useless, pointless uh, intervention with antibiotics when it can't do any good and it's just going to cause problems. For example, a sore throat, 90, over 90% of sore throats are viral. So you can take penicillin until the cows come on. It's not going to influence it. All you're going to do is set up a, a resistant immune population that are resistant to that particular substance. So doctors are, are being told repeatedly to dial back on this, but I don't see much sign of that. But the patient, the, in, the individual in society has control over their own body and their kids and family and saying, no, look, we, should, we just don't want to do that. But there are many alternatives to antibiotics in the natural field. Uh, you know, essential oils, herbs, mushrooms, all kinds of things. I wrote a whole book about this, actually, Robin. I don't know if you came across that one. But it's how to survive in a world without antibiotics because one of my sayings now is the golden age of antibiotics is over. It just about parallels my lifetime. I was one of the first kids in our village as a child in 1949 to have antibiotics, but if the first in the village. And then 60 years later, it's all, the game's over almost. I mean, you, you can still get some mileage out of antibiotics, but as everyone knows, the rise of these resistant beasties is practically taking us back to where we were. And it's a, so it was kind of a 60-year window that I've called the golden age of antibiotics, and there's been nothing like it in history. Just amazing. But, you know, what happened was that they were so, it's so effective, Robin, so quick and easy and cheap. I mean, you know, within a couple of years, penicillin was so cheap. It was like, you know, gummies. It was, there was no cost at all to save lives and heal people. What actually happened is that people got to believe in this. And, you know, I understand why. I, you know, I was in that early era. It's not a stupid mistake that you thought, well, fancy putting all your faith in these antibiotics. They were wonderful, no question. But what happened as they, as they began to lose their fire and their power and impetus, it, already people had long forgotten the old traditional remedies, you know, and they do work. Um, some of them are actually extremely effective. I'll give you an example. A Yuzdor study, you know, U.S. Department of Agriculture study, tested a whole bunch of herbal-type substances against vincomycin. You know, it's a pretty powerful antibiotic, vancomycin. Uh, 
Do you know what? Beat it. <laughs> you won't, so I'll tell you. White tea. White tea was more effective against pathogens than vancomycin. So it really just needs a new mindset where people are willing to go out there and look for possible alternatives that would work that are not toxic in their own right. And there's, there's plenty of them. I assembled you know, several hundred. And, and it, by the way, it doesn't just have to be substances. You know, blue light is quite sterilizing. Uh, th there's a, a whole system that's called phage viruses, where these are kind of viruses that prey on bacteria. So uh, the medicine is to swallow a mouthful of phages, which will then go out and track down the streptococcus, and they will kill the strep, uh, but not attack the person. In fact, they're very precise. You know, this, the one that kills strep won't touch staphylococcus or Haemophilus or any of those, you know, they're very specific, so you have to test which phage is the one you want. That, that's been going for all of the 20th century. In Russia, they kept the torch alive, while the rest of the world, you know, just forgot about all those old traditional things that really, really do work. So, you know, don't give up hope. It's not scary. I mean, it's scary if you get a resistant bacteria and you end up in orthodox hands because they don't know what to do. But I'm sure you've come across Frederick Klenner's work, have you, Robin? You know, the guy that infused massive doses of vitamin C into people who are at death's door with you know, pneumonia and septicemia and things like that. He, I, when I say massive doses, I'm talking 100 grams, 200 grams, huge amounts. But they actually recovered. The vitamin C is quite remarkable. It's... It works as a vitamin in the dose of about 100 milligrams, and yet you take 100 grams, that's 10,000 times the dose, it's not toxic. So it's really quite amazing. I am so glad to hear you say this and endorse what people have known for thousands of years, but we sort of have lost it ever since the golden age of antibiotics. Um, my most watched video is has had millions of views and tens of thousands of shares. And if you ask for it on the Vibe by Robin Openshaw, Facebook page. We'll link you to it. It's um, where I talk about how my daughter got very, very sick two summers ago and so sick that I would have considered putting her on antibiotic, even though, and I want to make this point, I've raised four children to adulthood without a single dose of antibiotics. And yes, I fed them better. And I know a lot about keeping the immune system strong, but you know, they, they got sick here and there. I think they were less likely to get the serious stuff like I did when I was a kid. I was on antibiotics constantly as a child, which is partly why I'm so motivated to keep my children off of it. But, but I, I, in this video, I say, here's what the supplements are that I use that are highly effective against viruses and bacterial infections. And that's the thing. Antibiotics don't touch viruses. They only, they only kill bacteria. And most of the time when a doctor prescribes an antibiotic, they're throwing an antibiotic at a virus and it can't even, can't even touch it. But also these natural substances don't devastate the microbiome. Would you back that up? Yes, absolutely. It's the, the worst thing you can do. The, the antibiotics don't choose. Oh, these are bad guys. I'll kill those. I'll leave the good guys alone. Antibiotics can't use that thinking process. So they just attack everything, good guys and bad guys. Well, you are a wealth of knowledge, and I'm so glad we finally got together. I know we've been trying for months. And so I'd love for you to share with my listeners what a few of your favorite books are of your huge body of of work and tell everyone where they can learn more from you. Okay, well, uh, a good starting place is my big open website, alternativedoctor.com. That's alternative-doctor, spelt in full, you know, D-O-C-T-O-R. 
facebook.com alternative-doctor.com and you can find pretty much anything via there some of the books have you know their own individual websites but uh, I was talking about having a person figure out their own perfect diet. I'd like to suggest my book, Diet Wise, is the best sort of self-help book on that particular thing. Because, you know, I, I know all the rules of food allergy, if you like. I've got 40 years of experience in that book. That would be a good one to start with. We've been talking about fire in the belly, of course, which is full of all sorts of fascinating information that hasn't come up in this talk yet. Um, and anyone that's trouble in health and other values... Uh, that has any degree of mental health issues, even if it's just not feeling good, depressed, or something more extreme, then I've, I've brought out a new book, Robin. I don't know if you've seen it. I must send you a copy, actually. Uh, the Real Secrets of Transforming Mental Health. It's a sort of holistic psychiatry book, if you like. And my view is that almost nobody's psychiatrically ill. They don't need drugs. They don't need all that stuff that gets pumped into them they need someone to find out what's physically wrong because most people it's vitamin deficiency it's food allergy it's heavy metal poisoning uh, hormonal imbalance which you know every gal knows that's important uh, these things need to be worked out and explored and i've done a whole compendium on that uh, it doesn't have its own website i don't believe so you'd have to go via the alternative doctor.com website to find that book but it's a huge book it's 450 pages i've got 16 pages of citations Rob. so everything i said because i knew it was going to be contentious everything i said is backed up by scientific references facts truth in other words well anything else that you want to share with my audience while we're on the subject of the second brain and guts and antibiotics and all the insults to gut health and any, anything that you didn't get to talk about? Well, I, I suppose one of the kind of funny, lighthearted things, but, you know, the second brain is kind of in our language, isn't it? You know, when you say, I, I, I feel it in my gut, or, you know, butterflies in the stomach, emotions down there, you know, that we are actually thinking to a considerable, you know, I had a gut feeling or uh, it sat like lead in my stomach. All of these kind of, it, it's in our language. We're well aware of how powerful an effect this is and how much it affects our thinking. But uh, I didn't get a chance to say that. I was in, I thought that was kind of important. That it's been there, hidden in the language all the time, but now the truth is out, and it's, it's marvellous to realise how much health and healing is available. The only other thing to share is lots of love with you guys. You know, you're, you're doing the right thing and taking care of yourselves and taking care of those around you. This is the way it's got to go. We cannot trust a chemicalised medical profession or a, a ruthless and dishonest chemical profession, meaning the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, a friend of mine, you know, who's a dentist, he's, he's passed, unfortunately, but came up with this very cute expression, pharmaceutical, like in farming or agriculture, you know, F-A-R, yes, F-A-R-M-E-R, pharmaceutical, on the grounds that they were kind of cultivating us as sick people so that they could harvest us for profits. <laughs> It's a bit cynical, but I thought it was very funny and very much to the point. You would suspect sometimes that we are being harvested, aren't we? The only way to stay out of the clutches of these people is take care of yourself. And knowledge is the key to that. Knowledge and self-knowledge. Good luck. Well, that was a very, very interesting way to end. Thinking about the pharmaceutical. Let's not be the farmed. So thank you so much for your amazing work in the world. Dr. Mumby, keep on keeping on and everybody go pick up his book if you're concerned about gut health and go through the elimination diet protocol so you can figure out what's been bothering you. Thanks, Robin. Be nice to talk.